Hi, you're about to get smarter in just a few minutes with Curiosity Daily from Curiosity.com. I'm Cody Goff. And I'm Ashley Hamer. Today, you learn about how language may have started with iconic sounds rather than hand gestures. Then you'll learn about the limitations of artificial intelligence with help from leading AI researcher and Oxford professor, Michael Wooldridge. Let's satisfy some curiosity. Researchers have found a missing link. No, not the missing link. That's actually not a thing. Anyway, what I'm talking about is a transitional moment in the evolution of language. The new evidence isn't an artifact from the past. It's a new study involving hundreds of people who speak dozens of languages. See, if you're trying to communicate with someone who doesn't speak your language, you'd probably turn to gestures to get your point across. You might walk with your fingers to say you'll get there by foot or mimic the act of writing to ask for a pen. These work because there's a connection between the gesture and the idea you're trying to get across. In linguistics terms, the gesture is iconic. Evolutionary linguists have been debating whether sounds that humans make are also iconic. Everyone thinks some are. You know, meow, buzz, chirp. Some iconoclastic researchers are building the case that a lot of sounds convey something about the thing they mean. To test out the theory, researchers started out with 30 sounds that English speakers had to come up with to express basic concepts. Then they recruited more than 800 people representing 26 languages and asked each of them to listen to the sounds and guess what they mean. Want to try it for yourself? Sure you do. Okay, this first sound is an action. It means either hide, eat, or cut. Got it? Hide, eat, or cut. Okay. All right, what do you think? If you guessed cut, then you agree with the person who originally made the sound. All right, it's time for round two. Does the following sound mean rock, water, or meat? Ready? Go. Oh, that sound does weird things to my ears. But the correct answer is water. Finally, for round three, the options are good, bad, and no way. Here you go. Huh, huh. If you guessed good, you are correct. The participants in the, you know, real version of the study actually did very well. A lot better than random chance. Of course, some of the sounds were gimmies. For instance, about 99% of listeners knew that snores meant sleep. Demonstrative words were the hardest. Only about 35% of listeners correctly guessed the word that. But most participants in the study were guessing from a list of six options, so even that far exceeded random chance. What does this all mean for evolutionary linguistics? Well, these results don't jive with the conventional belief that the sound of most words has nothing to do with whatever the word means. That makes it a lot easier to imagine how our ancestors may have begun developing words during the earliest days of spoken language. That just leaves me with one question. <laughs> it's a question. It's a question, Cody. Yep. When you see artificial intelligence in movies and TV shows, it's usually in the form of a thinking, feeling, super intelligence machine that can do everything humans can and more. But according to our guests today, that's a long way off. And it's not even the central goal of AI research in the first place. <laughs> Michael Wooldridge is a professor and head of the Department of Computer Science at the University of Oxford. 
and he's been at the heart of the AI community for 25 years. He's also the author of the new book, A Brief History of Artificial Intelligence, what it is, where we are, and where we are going. We asked Michael how far we've come in the development of AI and how far we still have to go. So AI first really began to be studied in the mid-50s. And there was a professor at Dartmouth College, a guy called John McCarthy, who gave the name to the field, artificial intelligence. And it's had a really rocky ride since then. There's times when it's looked like it's really made rapid progress. And then actually it turns out that the progress wasn't quite as, as rapid and dramatic as people thought. And it's gone out of fashion again. And this kind of gets a bit wearying, uh, but it's happened a lot. And at the moment it's back in fashion. So there's two big ideas that have driven AI. And the original idea that drove AI is roughly this. Suppose you want a machine that can do something about like driving a car or translating from French to English or uh, some task like that, right? So the first idea was what you do is you go and talk to people that can do those things and you find out how they do it. You get their expertise. You figure out what is the expertise? What are the skills that they're using to do this? And then what you do is you give those skills to a computer. And so that was the first big idea. And it had some successes, but actually it turned out it was kind of very, very limited in many ways. And one thing that it was really limited at was anything to do with perception. So when AI researchers talk about perception, they just mean understanding the world around you, the physical world, the world that we're all in at the moment. And so that for driverless cars, what that means is like perception for driverless cars means knowing where they are and knowing what's around them, knowing that that obstacle there is a pedestrian, that that's somebody on a bicycle, that that's a car, that that's a stop sign. A driverless car has to be able to do all of those things. And this first approach, the idea that you give all this expertise to a machine just turned out to be not very good for things like that. So anything which involves perception, which is essential for any AI that's going to exist in the real world, turned out to be tremendously hard. So what's the alternative? So the alternative is what you do is you basically model the brain. So we know we can look at brains in the microscope and we can see these structures of brains in the microscope. And if you look at a brain under a microscope, what you find is that it's got these huge, huge, huge numbers of nerve cells called neurons that are connected to one another in hugely interconnected networks. So one nerve cell, one neural cell is connected to thousands of other neural cells and each of those is connected to thousands of others. And there's you know, the order of a hundred billion of these nerve cells in your brain. And each of those nerve cells is like a tiny, tiny, simple computer. It can do a tiny little thing, but when they're connected together in these huge networks, they can do everything that human beings can. And so the second idea, which is called neural networks or neural nets, you know, the, the term has been picked up in the science fiction literature. You'll have heard if you watch the Terminator movies, you know, Schwarzenegger has a neural net processor and, uh, you know, and so on. But the, this is a real technology and uh, it works. It's made a lot of progress in the last sort of 15, 20 years, which is why it, there's so much excitement. But for all the progress that we've made, you have to keep reminding yourself, keep pinching yourself whenever you get too excited about AI and remind yourself that what we've made advances in is programs that can do these tiny, narrow, little things. A driverless car can't ride a bike or tell a joke or cook an omelette. It can just do one thing uh, really, really well. And that's where AI is, is currently focused. Yeah. It's just making me think like, 
that seems boring, right? That that AI can just do these tiny little things. I feel like every time, I mean, the way that you're saying it's like the, the public perception of what the future of AI is, is like these robots that can think and feel like humans. I mean, is, th- is that a bad goal to have or is it unrealistic? The goal of the, having the robots, you know, the robot butlers and stuff <laughs> I like guess, that. Yeah. No, it's not a bad goal to have, but it's a long time off, right? I mean, the real world, I say we're, we're these, the original efforts in AI, these ideas about you, you give the machine all this expertise where they just couldn't cope with the real world. They didn't scale, right? This is a standard idea. It just doesn't scale. If you ever talk to another AI researcher and they tell you they've got some brilliant idea, just say, does it scale? And they won't be able to answer because nothing ever scales, right? They couldn't cope with the real world or when neural networks turned out to be really powerful was in coping with the real world. So we've made, you know, breakthroughs. And I have to keep reminding myself, when I talk about a breakthrough in AI, I mean a cool bit of science, you know, a nice bit of mathematics. I don't mean robot butlers tomorrow. We don't have any clue at the moment how to go from the AI technologies that we have to the Hollywood dream. It's like we just literally, we don't even really understand the thing that we want to create. I mean, your consciousness, your self-awareness and all those things, they are mysteries, frankly. Scientifically speaking, we really don't understand them. And the idea that, you know, we might have technologies now which give us some immediate route to those is, I think, is, is, is really unrealistic. So it's possible. I'm not saying robot butlers, you know, and all the rest of it is impossible, but don't hold your breath. Sure. That makes sense. Sweet. We need to understand ourselves before we can make things that are like ourselves. Yeah, we need to understand what we're talking about, really. Yeah. And we don't. When we talk about consciousness and so on, we don't. We have some vague ideas and some some insights, but really it is, and I'm not exaggerating, it's a mystery. It's a scientific mystery. Michael explained to us that a thinking, feeling machine isn't even all that useful for most purposes. I mean, would you really want that kind of thing from your car or your toaster? I know I probably wouldn't. Again, that was Michael Waldridge, head of the Department of Computer Science at the University of Oxford and author of the new book, A Brief History of Artificial Intelligence. What it is, where we are, and where we are going. He'll be back tomorrow to tell us whether we should fear the robot apocalypse. All right, well, let's recap the main things we learned today. We learned that new research in the field of evolutionary linguistics suggests that language began with iconic sounds rather than physical gestures. This goes against the conventional belief that the sound of most words has nothing to do with what they mean, but it makes it easier to picture how our ancestors might have come up with words. My dad does a thing from Turkey because he lived in Turkey for a brief period. And in Turkey, to say no... They make a tisk sound, so they go with their tongue on the roof of their mouth, and they tilt their head up. So like if you wanted to climb something, you go and you tilt your head up, which is different than other cultures. Uh, that sound effect evokes a primal response in me because when I was little, if I misbehaved, that is the sound that he would make. So when I hear it, it strikes fear <laughs> and dread into my heart. <laughs> I, I make a noise whenever I like disapprove of something and it's it comes so quickly that if it's something I'm trying to hide it's very hard to especially like when I do it around my husband and I'm I'm trying not to show that I disapprove of something but I'll go and uh and he'll be like what what's wrong what's what what, what happened yeah I feel like that's uh the, the tisk thing is sort of uh at least partially universal
another iconic sound, is it not? Yeah. I mean, I think it makes a lot of sense that spoken language would start with sounds rather than gestures. As someone who doesn't know a ton about linguistics, I have trouble figuring out how you could bridge gestures into sound. But starting with iconic sounds seems to make sense to me. Yeah, I also uh, have no experience with this, but my baby tries to vocalize a lot more than he tries to gesture at things. Right. Like if he's hungry, he screams. He doesn't point. He doesn't reach out. He screams. So uh, take that for what it is. Yeah. And we learned that one of the biggest limitations of artificial intelligence is that it's pretty bad at perception. That's why really well-designed AI focuses on doing one very, very specific thing. We could have more advanced AI in the future, but according to Michael Wooldridge, neural networks just can't cope with the real world at scale right now. And we don't even really understand how to get there. So don't hold your breath hoping for a robot butler anytime soon. I also want to quickly take this opportunity to reiterate that Michael Wooldridge is like a big deal in the AI space. He's published more than 400 articles in the theory and practice of autonomous agents and multi-agent systems, including nine books. And he's held lots of top positions at AI associations and research agencies. So this guy really knows what he's talking about. And I can't wait to have him back tomorrow. Definitely. The writer for today's first story was Grant Curran. Our managing editor is Ashley Hamer, who is also an audio editor on today's episode. Our producer and lead audio editor is Cody Goff. Join us again tomorrow to learn something new in just a few hours. Don't! I mean, minutes. Was that an iconic sound? This is Homer? I don't know how iconic it is, but (laughs) you knew what it was. I think it's iconic. Don't! And (laughs) And until then, stay curious.